Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. How sound is she asleep? I needs must wake her. Madam? Madam? Madam, I let the county take you in your bed. He'll fright you up in faith. <laughs> Will it not be? <laughs> what, dressed and in your clothes and down again? I must needs wake you. Lady, lady! <laughs> lady? That was Juliet's nurse discovering the body of Juliet in her bedchamber, dead from drinking a poisonous vial. Or is Juliet actually dead? Welcome to The Plays The Thing, the ultimate podcast for lovers of William Shakespeare. You have joined us for Act Four of Romeo and Juliet. I am Tim McIntosh. I'm Heidi White. I'm Sarah Jane Bentley. And we are so glad that you have joined us, dear listeners. And we want to remind you that um, if you are a stateside listener, PBS is going to broadcast this month, April 23rd, 2021, an original film for television by the National Theater. It's a it's kind of a stylized film of Shakespeare's masterpiece, Romeo and Juliet, by the National Theater. Stars Josh O'Connor and Jesse Buckley. And Sarah Jane, one of the benefits of living in Great Britain is that you actually have already seen this performance. You saw it this week, didn't you? I did. And it rarely happens that way around. It's usually the American premiere first, and in Britain we're sitting waiting for the premiere to come to us. But yes, I've seen it. And I'm excited to hear what listeners think when they get to see it at the end of April. Are, are you going to tell us anything about what you thought about the production? I think I'm going to be tight-lipped for now and okay. try not to give anything away. Okay, I'll do my right. best not to. <laughs> all right. That's great. That's great. We will, we, you know, traditionally have a question and answer podcast at the end after act five and I'm sure that we're going to talk about what we thought about the production. Heidi and I are going to watch it on um, the 23rd. Hopefully our listeners will also watch it on the 21st. So we'll hear your convictions then, Sarah Jane. Uh, Let's dive into act four. So scene one, a plan is hatched. This plan is going to really kind of like blossom in the closing scenes of the entire play. Uh, The plan is hatched by Friar Lawrence. And the scene opens with Friar Lawrence speaking to Paris, who is, I guess, engaged to marry Juliet because nobody except for Juliet 
Romeo and Friar Lawrence know that Juliet and Romeo have already been married. So Friar Lawrence is speaking with Paris about um, his impending marriage to Juliet. And then Juliet arrives. Paris is really glad to see her. And we've not talked about Paris. He's this kind of side item character. And by the descriptions from Juliet's nurse, he's got it like going on. You know, Paris is, he's good looking, he's well-born, he's well-educated. And it seems that he's pretty confident that Juliet is going to like him. So uh, he says, happily met my lady and my wife. Do not deny to Friar Lawrence that you love me. I am sure that you love me. So here's my question. How should we read Paris? I mean, he's confident, certainly, but should we perceive his confidence to be hubris? Does he have a big character flaw here? What do you What do you think, Heidi? I've I've never read Paris as villainous or even arrogant. Like he he seems almost like milk toast to me. Hmm. Like he's trying to flirt with her, and she doesn't want to. But that's. That's like par for the course for if you, I mean, he's literally supposed to marry her tomorrow. So he seems like he's allowed to flirt with her. He doesn't seem at all in tune with anything that's going on. And he's mm. not a major character. He seems extraneous in the sense that Shakespeare didn't flesh out his character. And, and Shakespeare's such a genius at fleshing out character that that seems intentional to me as, a, mm. as if to say he doesn't even matter. He's just a regular guy, like not worthy of Juliet, but not because there's something terribly wrong with him, but because they don't have this magical and transcendent love, which is something that just happened to Romeo and Juliet. It, Heidi, is he, is he dumb? I mean, no, Juliet's than... very clever with him. He doesn't seem to pick up on what she's putting down. Is he slow? Yeah, I mean, that seemed like all of my dating experience in college too, right? <laughs> so that's... Like, <laughs> I wish you... Dude, I wish you could track you with me. You just not can't track picking up doesn't what mean I you're am dumb. You're just not right picking now. up what I'm putting yeah. down. <laughs> so, um, I, I, I don't read Paris negatively. I don't read him positively. I've never seen him portrayed as a villain in a production. I've always seen him portrayed as just a guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you think, how, Sarah yeah. Jane? Sarah Jane, how do you read Paris? Well, I think he is very misfortunate and that we should perhaps have quite a lot of pity for Paris because he, in a way, is, is um, a victim of this tragic plot of Romeo and Juliet's he's a kind of accessory to it. And in terms of his function in the plot, he's really crucial because in a way he's a direct opposite to Romeo. They're both present at that first feast. Juliet is asked at the feast to consider Paris as her future husband. Um, They both are hasty. They both want to marry her immediately. Um, Paris particularly wants heirs, he says, Mm. which seems like a noble reason to want to get married. And in this scene, I don't see him as overconfident. If anything, I see him as a, a little out of his depth. He, he's not capable of understanding a woman like Juliet. He, he's underestimated her, I think. He's done all this bargaining with her father. I don't think there's anything sinister about him, but he doesn't, in this scene, he doesn't come off particularly well. He doesn't, he doesn't seem to have the measure of Juliet. What I did find really, really striking though, especially seeing the play recently, is that it's Paris who she meets when she comes to the friar's cell. Mm -hmm. In terms of the dramatic power of that, Juliet has just put up with so much before she enters this scene. Um, She's considered death. um, Sorry, she's she's considered the, the death of Romeo. She's lost... Yes, Tybalt, but she's also considered that Romeo would have been killed by him had he not killed Tybalt. And death and exile, they, they sort of read those as the same thing. And she sees her whole, whole world crashing down. She's come to the friar for some sort of desperate solution and she meets Paris. <laughs> and she's sort of in this emotional turmoil. And in this scene, she has incredible composure and Paris seems so easy for her to um, just sort of dismiss and play off. Mm. 
I, when, when you say Paris is out of his depth with Juliet, I'm thinking back and I'm thinking, isn't everyone out of their depth with Juliet? I mean, Romeo understands her, I think, best of anyone in the play. But even Romeo is not kind of operating at her speed and capacity. She's but- just cut from a... She's just... The more I read this play, the more I'm like, she's just the pinnacle of this play. And this play is like arguably the pinnacle of Shakespeare. And he's arguably the pinnacle of, you know, English language writers that we're just talking about a stunning character. Heidi, I cut you off. No, I'm so glad. Forgive me for even attempting to interrupt such a great speech. I um, It's like interrupting Hamlet and his to be or not to be speech, right? <laughs> it's wish. like, sit down, woman. Um, I wish. So, um, <laughs> I feel you. I completely agree with you. I think, although of course Hamlet is Shakespeare's pinnacle character, but this this thing about Shakespeare, he writes these women that are that steal the show. And he's he's so he just seemed to really love strong women. And I can't wait to meet this guy someday in the afterlife and just say, like, how did you end up writing these incredible women uh in your time? And so anyway, he just seems to have such a great regard for women. And you see that so much in his plays. And Julia is no exception to that because you're exactly right. Romeo is in many ways just a guy, too. And, yeah. and part of that statement, I think, coming from the play is that a transcendent, powerful love can happen to somebody who's just a guy, right? But it happened to happen to Romeo, who's just a guy, and Juliet, who turns out to be an extraordinary person. Yeah. It, it seems to me that she really elevates Romeo, and he at least has the capacity to be elevated. My sense about Paris is that not really knowing who he has as a wife, if he and Juliet got married, I don't know that he stands to become improved in the way that that Romeo stands to become improved. And already we see evidence of him being improved. Like his poetry, the beginning of the play is, oh, uh, it, it, it's it's not powerful. It's stilted. It's more about his own feelings than it is about Rosalind. But then when Juliet steps on the scene and he gets a vision of Juliet, even his poetry improves, his capacity deepens. And I see this all the time with Shakespeare that he, I think Shakespeare might have a little bit of a, a kind of a type, which is if you have wit and if you have poetry, you're probably a good person. You're probably a really good person. It probably means you have, and of course there are examples. Heidi, you and I, you know, talked about Richard II is an incredible poet. Uh, He's a crap king. He's just a crap king. So it's not that Shakespeare always says, if you have wit, you, you know, have a great moral bearing. Boy, but sometimes he really does put the, he, he really does give the most wit to the characters who, and, and he matches that wit with, real moral fortitude and integrity and they're honest and Juliet is one of those characters I think for me I wanted to join in in your praise of Juliet and just say that reading act four again this week the thing that struck me about her is her capacity for love yes is so remarkable and astonishing when you look at the family that she's from Her mother is distant. Mm -hmm. Her father is sort of capricious and prone to anger. Her nurse, I think, is somewhat manipulative and full of bawdy, tawdry jokes. Where did she learn this capacity for love? It's it's not something that she's... And so it must have some kind of divine inspiration, mustn't it? Because this isn't something she's learned on earth. And so when she meets Romeo, this is a young girl who is just crying out for love Mm. and she wants to be love and she wants to love and she has a noble love. She really does. She really does. Um, Scene two, Juliet returns home, finds mom and dad and they're preparing for her wedding. And there's a turn in Juliet, because she now has a plan. And to kind of cover this plan, she agrees. She tells mom and dad, yeah, I'm really excited to marry Paris. 
but she's hiding this plan. So the friar has proposed in scene one a plan that Juliet is going to consent to marry Paris. And then on the night before the wedding, she's going to drink a sleeping potion that's going to make her appear dead. So that's the plan. She goes into this meeting with mom and dad and she's like, yeah, I'm down. Paris, I'll marry him. And they're so surprised they actually moved the wedding up a day, which is going to complicate everything. So Juliet now heads to her bed chambers to, you know, prepare for the wedding. Her father goes off to tell Paris the good news. And the audio that we heard at the top of the show is the nurse discovering Juliet after she has taken this, this vial and drunk this sleeping potion. But there's a moment before Juliet takes that vial that she's reasoning with herself about whether or not to do this. And I, like, this is one of the most remarkable monologues in this play. And it's really neglected. It's so powerful, her discussion with herself about whether or not to follow through on this plan. And the plan, Heidi and Sarah Jane, is fraught with potential problems, isn't it? She knows what the problems are. You remember the problems that she kind of poses to herself, Heidi, before drinking this vial? Yeah, she's concerned that uh, she will wake up uh, and she'll be alone with dead bodies and there won't be any air and she'll suffocate. Uh, she is concerned about the presence of Tybalt, who is I, like recently dead, like the, the, the presence of this dead, bloody body of her cousin that she loved. She's going to be alone. Um, she's concerned that the plan won't work and uh, that she'll just die there. Like, mm. And I mean... It's the stuff of nightmares, it right? Is. Like I've had nightmares when it I've like is. woken up and I, I find myself in like underground, like buried alive or in a grave or, you know, like, do you guys remember that Edgar Allan Poe story, the cask of Amontillado and how they like take him underground and they seal him up in the wine cellar, like that sense of suffocation um, and of claustrophobia. She's afraid of that because she's a child, and because this is a horrible, horrible thing to ask any human being to do, especially like a barely teenage girl. And I think that this speech is so powerful to your point, Tim, because it's so humanizing of Juliet. Yeah. Like yeah. she's not now just this like heroic murder for love. Uh, uh, but along with that, she's like a scared little girl. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so I think that this um, this monologue really does adds a whole other layer of depth to exactly what Sarah Jane just talks about, which is Juliet's capacity to love. Like she doesn't shirk from it. She does it. And on her lips is she's reminding herself of her love for Romeo. And that's how she bolsters herself through her fear and to, to endure this great trial in her yeah. life. Yeah. In this transition. Sarah Jane. Yes. I mean, what a difficult moment for this character so young and facing the unknown in such a palpable way. It's, it's a very arresting speech. It begins with her desire for solace and company and she calls out for the nurse and no one comes. And she says, my dismal scene, I needs must act alone. And she realizes that this is all on her. There's no one else who can help her in this predicament. All on her. She goes through these four different scenarios and the first one, is the potion fails, she wakes up and has to marry Paris. The second one is the poison is treacherous because the friar is, is going to try and get rid of her to escape any kind of comebacks on him because he's married her to Romeo and now he's going to have to marry her to Paris. The third one is that she wakes in the tomb first. She wakes early and is suffocated. The next is that she lives. She doesn't suffocate. Mm. And she goes mad and beats out her own brains with the bones of one of the corpses in the vault. But of course, the fifth scenario that she doesn't cover is that Romeo comes before she wakes up and thinks that she's dead. <laughs> and that's, that's uh -huh. the thing that uh -huh. Shakespeare... And that's what we're headed did. toward. So, yeah, so it's really uh, leaves that huge dramatic question there. And the end of the speech where she's actually concerned about insanity and suicide 
she she steals herself and it reminds me of that moment bizarrely in Macbeth which is a play full of the macabre and full of this imagery which we would now call gothic um when he has he says is this a dagger that I see before me it marshes mm, me the way that mm. I was going and, and she has this vision methinks I see my cousin's ghost stay Tybalt stay and then she she takes the drink and and it's that same resolution that Macbeth has when he knows if he kills the king it's certain death for him she has that same resolution and there's an element of the supernatural here that is guiding her yeah you guys let's listen to this monologue and when we come back I'm going to ask each of you um you know Juliet is going to resolve to go through with this plan I want to know what this says about her but first let's listen to the monologue what if it be a poison which the friar subtly hath ministered to have me dead lest in this marriage he should be dishonored because he married me before to Romeo I fear it is and yet methinks it should not, for he has still been tried, a holy man. How if, when I am laid into the tomb, I wake before the time that Romeo come to redeem me? There's a fearful point. Shall I not then be stifled in the vault, to whose foul mouth no healsome air breathes in, and there I strangled ere my Romeo comes? Or if I live, is it not very like the horrible conceit of death and night together with the terror of the place, as in a vault, an ancient receptacle, where for this many hundred years the bones of all my buried ancestors are packed, where bloody Tybalt, yet but green in earth, lies festering in his shroud, where, as they say at some hours in the night, spirits resort? Alack! Alack, is it not like that I, so early waking, what with loathsome smells and shrieks like mandrakes torn out of the earth, that living mortals hearing them ran mad? Oh, if I wake, shall I not be distraught, environed with all these hideous fears, and madly play with my forefather's joints, and pluck the mangled Tybalt from his shroud? And in this rage, with some great kinsman's bone, as with a club, dash out my desperate brains. Oh, look! Methinks I see my cousin's ghost seeking out Romeo, that he spit his body upon a rapier's point. Stay, Tybalt, stay! Romeo, I come. This do I drink to thee. Romeo, I come, this do I drink to thee. So Juliet resolves after all of these, these horrible scenarios that she imagines, she resolves she's going to go through with Friar Lawrence's plan. She's going to drink the vial and she does drink the vial. What does this say about this woman? That she, despite all of these terrors facing her and all the ways that the plan can fail, um... Heidi, what do we learn about Juliet that she resolves that she's that she's, she's going to go through freaking badass? I mean, <laughs> like right. that is it's a remarkable thing, and I contrast that again with Romeo, and we're giving Romeo a hard time here. At least I am, but it speaks to uh, the fact that he is an ordinary person. I, I think that in order for Shakespeare to make this play work, he had to have one or both of his lovers be just like regular people. And he picked Juliet to be extraordinary and Romeo to be ordinary. Uh, so Romeo didn't even want to go live in like a next door town. Mm. And she's exiling herself literally to right. the grave here. And and I that, that contrast bears... I think deserves some scrutiny, right? This is something I would I would lead my students through if I were teaching, you know, when and if I teach this play, hopefully next year again. Um, this is one of those exercises, I think. Let's talk about Romeo's Romeo's exile in this play versus Juliet's exile in this play. Uh, and they both go through a great existential and practical deal of suffering for the sake of the other. But it is indeed Juliet who is willing to go through a metaphorical death mm. uh, for the sake of love. And I, I think that that, to your point that you made earlier, it elevates it from the teenage drama that it's often accused of being um, 
to something a little bit deeper than that. Sarah Jane. I think what's so true about what Heidi said is the, um, the resolve that Juliet has and how, as you said, she is unswerving in her progress through the play. So first she meets Romeo, then she proposes marriage to him, then she marries him, then she takes his side against her kinsman's death and against the views of all her family. Mm-hmm. So you can see there's a steady escalation that once she's committed, she is tested and tested and every test, she walks through the door and takes the next one. She then um, goes to Friar Lawrence. He conceives of this plan. She then very calmly and eloquently tells her parents that she will marry Paris. And then she goes to her room, thinks on what might happen and drinks the potion. And this isn't even the last and most dangerous and awful thing that she will do. There's yet a greater challenge for her after this. So she's just, the the pitch of the character is just like steadily building and building and building. And so this is a kind of climactic moment in her character, but there's yet a greater one to come in act five. And she is steadfast. And I think Mm. it would be a mistake to read her instead as sort of desperate or, um, whimsical or or just you know acting randomly there's there's a very clear progression to what the play asks of her and she she rises to every challenge and here she does it with such beauty really in in the face of the fear that she has acknowledged and she can picture before her she vows that she will do all that love requires of her, even death. Love is as strong as death, she says, and she drinks. There are two other characters that I can think of in Shakespeare. I'm sure there are more, but these two really jump out at me, who face straight up the prospect of their own demise. One of them kind of flees from it, and one of them chooses to go on. The two characters that I'm thinking of are Claudio from Measure for Measure. So Claudio, just to give a really short recap, is approached by his sister, Isabella. Uh, Claudio is in jail. He is going to be killed. Isabella comes to him and she says, hey, listen, I talked to the sheriff and I tried to get you out of, you know, your pending execution. But he said, there's only really one way for that to happen. And that, Claudio, is if I, your sister, sleep with the sheriff. It's the only way I'm getting off. So I'm really sorry, but you're going to have to die. Claudio hears this and he has this beautiful monologue in which he's like thinking about what lies on the other side of life and ah, to die and go, we know not where to lie in cold obstruction and to rot. And like Juliet, he looks at all of these things that potentially face him on the other side of death. And his response is basically, hey, um, could you let me out of this, Isabella? Sweet sister, let me live. The sin you do to save a brother's life, nature dispenses with the deed so far that it becomes a virtue. Sleep with the sheriff because you're saving my life. And of course, Isabella is mortified at this. You know, may it never be. Hamlet, the other character that I'm, that leapt to mind, who's facing his own death, most famously in the to be or not to be speech, he looks at death and he doesn't know what's on the other side of it. But he also, I think like Juliet, chooses to go on. I mean, he, he talks about all the things that human beings must endure in this life, where like kind of like the escape of suicide is right there but we endure the pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office. He he names all these things and he says, we endure them because what lies in the grave is unknown and is so terrifying. The undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. So I, I, I think there's something going on here. Hamlet is terrified just like Juliet. Both of them don't know what lies in the grave for them, and both of them choose to go on. And I think Shakespeare is, um, that is, 
I think that is his full applause that these two great characters both face the kind of like most dire, tragic fear that a human being can face. And they choose to go on. And Claudio, by contrast, faces those same fears, names those same fears. And he like seeks an alternative, asks his sister to kind of like violate her own virtue to let him off the hook. I just think those are, that's really, really powerful. And I love that Juliet kind of gets this moment, really the last big moment until we see her at the conclusion of the play. Sarah Jane. I just wanted to add one more character to your list there. Um, and before I do also, oh, yeah, yeah. I just want to come back on Hamlet a tiny bit because Hamlet says that death is the undiscovered country from where no traveler returns, but he's seen his right. father's ghost come back from purgatory. So mm-hmm. I always find that line mm-hmm. really problematic because it's not true. He's seen that someone does come back from the dead. Um, but the other character I wanted to mention was Desdemona. And if we just look at the end of this scene, at oh yeah, we have we see that Shakespeare revisits this moment and the stagecraft of it again in Othello, his other tragedy where we have a double tragedy that both man and wife die. So. Um, she drinks the vial, she drinks from the vial and falls upon her bed within the curtains is the stage direction that I have in my edition for Juliet. So this mm. is the bed, the marriage bed, where this two, the pair of stainless maidenhoods were lost moments earlier on the stage. So now we see her behind the curtains in a way die to the audience. Of course, the dramatic irony is so powerful. We know she's not actually dead. Um, and so the marriage bed, it becomes her deathbed. Um, and then we see that again, don't we, with Desdemona and Othello at the end of Othello, that the marriage bed is also the deathbed. And um, I think that on the stage, that would be a really powerful symbol that we can easily forget when we're reading it, that she's actually yeah. on the bed behind the curtain. Right. It's another moment. This podcast is really adamant that Shakespeare is meant to be performed, not merely read. And this is one of those instances that the kind of like symbolic weight of her dying in her marriage bed is lost, or it it could be lost by just reading the play. Yeah. After Juliet's, quote, death, uh, the nurse goes to wake her. She finds Juliet dead and mother and father come in and soon after Paris arrives with Friar Lawrence. But I'm interested in Lady Capulet, Juliet's mother. In this scene, scene five of act four, do we see Lady Capulet? Do we see something new from her, Sarah Jane? She's been cold previous to this point, but now facing her little girl's death, does something change in her? She's an interesting character, isn't she? Because we don't we don't hear many lines from her. She's on the stage a fair bit, so perhaps the director could do something with that in terms of developing the relationship with Juliet between the mother and the daughter. But so far in the play, I, I get the impression that she is quite distant from Juliet, that the relationship between Juliet and the nurse has used up the maternal bond. And yet here she says, my child, my only life, my only life, revive, look up, or I will die. Mm. And I was struck by that, that she, she seems to be transformed in this scene to a really uh, doting, loving mother, which isn't something we've seen much of previously in the play. Right. Right. Yeah. Did you say that, Heidi? this is what I meant when I said you don't see a lot of characterization in Paris, but Shakespeare's perfectly care- capable of characterizing like a deep characterization with just a few lines. And I think Lady Capula is a great example mm. of that. Uh, we learn from the beginning of the play in her first conversation with Juliet uh, that she tells Juliet she's going to be married uh, or that Paris is seeking her hand. And then she tells her, by the time I was your age, I was already a mother. So we know that she had a child at 13. 
So she's in her 20s right now. She's 26 years old wow, right now. Wow. Okay? Yeah. Now, we also know that Cap- that Lord Capulet is an older man. We know that because mm-hmm. he asks for a sword in the big con- in act one uh, in the big conflict uh, when print when the Prince of Verona claims that, you know, next time we're all going to be banished. I think it's that scene when he says, get me a sword. And um, you, one of you can correct and me. As wrong Taylor scene. Swift says, and as Taylor Swift says, his dancing days are over. Yes. Right. Um, so he asks for a sword because he wants to engage in the battle. And his wife says to him, a crutch? What mean you by a sword? So we know he's an older man. So we mm. have an unequal marriage. That's hard. It's rarely portrayed that way, which is interesting to me because I find that fascinating. She's not like a middle-aged woman. Yeah. And so, and she's married to a man much older than herself. And we do see that there's a, a I really like what Sarah Jane said that the nurse has usurped the the maternal bond, but there's not necessarily a. It's not we don't see Lady Capulet trying to create that bond, right? She doesn't come between Lord Capulet and her daughter when he is beating her in in Act right, Three, right? right. In the so end of scene we, or Act Three, there, she yeah. does have she does have this distance to her, but that's the thing about death. To what the to the point of what. Sarah Jane said that love is as strong as death. And sometimes it is death that shows us what we love, right? Once we have lost something, once, once something that we have failed to cherish or treasure as we ought is slipped beyond our grasp, that's when we realize how much we loved that thing. And, and I think that that's mm. happening here. Mm. This grief that she has of my daughter is gone. She is my only life. And, and that we see, that connection of death and love we see in so many ways in the play. And we're going to see how that bond, uh, that, that remembrance uh, actually brings restoration to the great rift between these two families. And we'll see that in act five. Sarah Jane. Yeah. There's a, there's another really interesting point here that Heidi's just brought to mind, which is that Juliet is the only heir of the Capulets. So mm-hmm. I've never thought of this before. So when the feud is resolved at the end of the play, so what? There will be no next generation mm-hmm. of Capulets. That's it. The feud is resolved, but there, there's no future for the Capulet family. So it's desperately sad. And that's I think, it's, yeah. why she's lamenting this so much. She, she later says, but one poor one, one poor and loving child, but one thing to rejoice and solace in. This is her only child. And of course, engendering the next generation is something that comes up a lot at the beginning of the play. And mm. Capulet, Capulet will have no heir. Right. I've, I've mentioned on this show before um, a writer who I've been really kind of informed by, a French anthropologist named René Girard, um, a late convert to Catholicism, or maybe a midlife convert to Catholicism. But um, he has this, like this, this kind of theory that um, oftentimes when you get a community that's in trouble, like the Capulets or the Montagues, there's this kind of scapegoating effect that all of the problems that are being, that are afflicting the community, whether it be um, disease or warfare, everything is put on an other. Everything is put on, so for the Capulets, everything is put on Romeo. He is our enemy. He is our chief enemy, the slayer of um, Tybalt. Now, likewise for the Montagues, they're going to put everything on Tybalt. He is our chief enemy and all of our afflictions and all of the mistrust between our families, is it all centers and local, localizes on him. And you get into a kind of frozen state of mutual tyranny in this sort of situation. And what, what Rene Girard says is like, there's kind of only one way out. The scapegoat has to die. It has to, the scapegoat must die. And he holds up the gospels as sort of like the, the kind of like exemplar moment that everyone is raging at Jesus, the disciples are leaving Jesus, but all of the kind of travails of both the Greeks and, excuse me, the, the, the Romans and the Jews, they're all kind of pushed upon Jesus. He's the scapegoat and he takes on all of these, um, well, he takes on 
the sins of the world. Yes. But like in that very time, he kind of like relieves all of the pressure that are, that is afflicting these two communities. And you can kind of see this building, this play is building to this moment. There's so much hostility between these families. And now the first crack in the, the first moment where we might see a break in the conflict is here at Juliet's deathbed when her mother and her father and her nurse and Friar Lawrence and Paris see this dead girl, this girl they think is dead. And all of a sudden, everything begins to sort of soften. You know, there's a possibility of, let's call it salvation that is out there for him, for them. And act five is going to be whether or not we kind of get that salvation or not. That's kind of one of the pending questions of the act. So the Circe Institute is the host of this podcast. And by this point, the podcast has gotten so big that a lot of you don't even really know who Circe is. In short, it's an organization built to inspire and inform classical educators. That's the, that's the purpose of the organization. But maybe instead of me telling you about them, let's drop in on one of their apprenticeship classes um, where they're going to be discussing a play. Let's see if you can guess which Shakespeare play they're discussing. I was kind of going to go off a little bit on what Alex said, but I think one of the differences is that it seems like Polonius has his mind made up already about people. This is life in the Circe apprenticeship program. Master teachers, mentoring other educators. Now, most of the mentoring happens in small group discussions like this one. Whereas Ham was putting on the play because he actually wants to know. He if you're says, wanting inspiring conversation with like-minded friends, pushing toward truth, wisdom, and virtue. Yeah, yeah when have I said it was thus and it was not, right? Exactly. Learn more at Circe, that's C-I-R-C-E, institute.org slash apprenticeship. Okay, back to our show. But he's already made up his mind. I want to close by revisiting this question that we talked about in Act One, which is, this is a tragedy, right? Is this a typical tragedy along the lines of Macbeth and Lear? Macbeth, punished for his hubris, for his overleaping ambition. Lear, punished for chasing away and exiling the daughter who actually loved him more than any other. And don't we have evidence here that Juliet, and this is act four is Juliet's act. It's not Romeo's act. Don't we have evidence here that Juliet is kind of like maybe being punished for her flaws? She deceives her father by saying that she'll marry Paris. You know, with like these other flaws, aren't they coming home to roost here in act four? Isn't this another kind of tragedy of character, Sarah Jane and Heidi? I, I, I'm totally, I hope it doesn't sound too obvious that I'm setting my, my question up to fail, but I really do want to return to this question of, is this a tragedy of character or are we, are we, is, is something else happening in this play? I'm going to let Sarah Jane take this because I'm going to gather my thoughts. I think... Of course, it, it is a tragedy of character because that is sort of what Shakespeare writes. That's his departure from Aristotle where character is more important than action almost. But I think what makes this, this early play of Shakespeare so powerful is that it is a lyric tragedy. So we have this really powerful and intense insight into how Juliet especially is feeling and thinking as she goes through the tragic arc and that creates huge pathos with the audience so I think as a young writer that he does sort of bring a lot of emotion into um, the tragedy in that way that although it's very very quick paced and there's a lot of action the focus is on these, these lyric moments where Juliet speaks out mm. um, and when she's alone. It's a very, very neat tragedy is the other thing. You know, as, as an early playwright, it's, it's very tightly wrought that, that, you know, Paris is there from the outset. All of the festivities that are prepared for the wedding feast 
are immediately turned on their head with this powerful dramatic inversion and they become the funeral um, the funeral beer for Juliet. So if you think again, in terms of the staging, that's very easily done. He's, he's packaged up something that's really good, it's going to sell well. And I think what we haven't considered enough perhaps is, is the tragedy of Romeo. Is it a tragedy of character for Romeo? I mean, he's not really in this scene, but yes, it is. It is. But what's not tragic about it is that love triumphs, I think. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Heidi. I don't disagree with anything that Sarah Jane said, but I don't think this is a tragedy of character. I think, but if it was, if it was, it wouldn't be for the reason that you brought up, Tim, uh, which is her disobedience, her disrespect to her father, her her deceit, her deny, like those kinds of things. Right. Uh, those are all, to Sarah Jane's point, evidence of her great love for Romeo. She's willing to renounce her family. She's willing to deny her father, right, and refuse her name in order for the sake of love, uh, and 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 thus then that disobedience and deceit and and all that falls under kind of a forgivable offense for the sake of love um, and and wouldn't lead to the tragedy mm-hmm. itself. Mm-hmm. However, if there was a failure in character for them, it would be exactly, and I'm going to quote Juliet's words, it would be because Romeo is the god of her idolatry. And that question of idolatry is a mm. big one in the play. And I've been thinking about this all day. I said to you, Tim, earlier, we had a, we had a call with David about something else. And I said, I have all of these new thoughts on Romeo and Juliet, something I've never thought of before. And so you guys are going, and our listeners are going to be the first ones to hear this thought, this new thought I had about Romeo and Juliet. You can tell me what are the flaws? What am I missing? Do you think there's something in this? Whatever. So uh, I was, this all started because uh, I was listening to Lucy, as she was recording the um, portion of Spencer's epithalamian poem, and it uses the same transcendent language. And this is what Sarah Jane pointed out about Spencer. He uses the same kind of imagery, the same kind of language to describe uh, his own wedding day and his own love for his bride in this poem. And we were wondering if that maybe influenced Shakespeare. I think that's a really good question. Um, but the thing that it made me think of is that these words are largely cosmological. And it in a time in which cosmology was a major question theologically, right? Cosmology and theology were so connected with each other during the Renaissance. Mm. And I think we need to reclaim that because I think that's true. I think that is the right way to think about, um, about cosmology uh, or the, the, the study of the cosmos. And, but hardly anybody thinks that way anymore. Please. Hey, just inter- I want to just... Can I intersect here for a second, Heidi? I mean, when, when you say cosmology, like we talked in scenes one, two, three about ontology, this is like a major branch of um, philosophical investigation. Cosmology is another one. And around this time, there's this kind of unity between Christian theology. This is just what Heidi said, a unity between Christian theology and cosmology. And so in something like Dante, 300 years before Shakespeare, the spheres are singing to each other in harmony because God has designed the cosmos in this organic and harmonious way. And it reflects both his character and his design. But it's around this time that that design begins to come under scrutiny because of Galileo, Copernicus. And I think there's evidence that Shakespeare is responding to some of those changes, Copernicus in particular, we're going to talk a lot about this when we do Hamlet, because Andrew Kern is like really, he thinks that Hamlet is, a, is kind of a, a big response to this major cosmological shift. Okay, so all that, I just wanted to kind of interject Heidi and make sure that our listeners kind of like saw the import of this kind of marriage between cosmology and theology and its dissolution, which is happening around the time of Shakespeare. Now, please continue. Thank you for that. The cosmological language, though, that's used in Spencer is a little different than Shakespeare uses and puts into the mouth of Romeo and Juliet. And that is that Spencer's language is, uh, it is, it is theological in nature in the sense that it's Christian in nature. The idea of the proper orderings of love have always been within Christian theology uh, that the lesser loves 
our human loves, the loves of the created world ought to point us beyond themselves to love of God, right? We had to love our children and through that learn to love God more. Uh, and so we love our child because for the sake of the child and then also for the sake of um, being able to move beyond that into this greater love of God. And that's Spencer's language. Shakespeare's language is, it's more limited than that. It is, Mm. there is no moving beyond the Mm. cosmos of Juliet, right? It is not that, to to Romeo, it is not that Juliet leads him to a deeper and more transcendent experience with God. It's, It's that she is the sun itself. There is no cosmology. There is no theology. There is nothing beyond their love. Right, she is the light. She's the source of light. Uh, she, their love is itself a cosmology, and there's nothing beyond it that's better than that. Now they don't lose their faith, right? But their love for each other does not take them into a deeper faith. It becomes its own cosmology, its own world, its own universe with its own light. Juliet uses that same language about Romeo too, right? Like when she gives that speech about cut him up into little stars and um, and then he is going and all the world will be in love with night, right? This idea and that Juliet the source- Juliet is the sun. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So Juliet is the sun. Now, Holy Scripture tells us that when we go to heaven, there will not be a sun there because God himself will be the, the sun. God himself will be the light, right? And so the lesser lights are made as mirrors or pathways into knowledge of the greater light, but that's not true for Romeo and Juliet. Their love is its own cosmology. And so I'm wondering then if the significance of that is that that really is what might lead to their great fall. If it is a character- If it is a character tragedy, tragedy it's that's because the form of the character flaw. He is then the God of my idolatry yeah, and that right, for right. both of them. Now, that is not necessarily my interpretation. That's my question, right? Yeah. Because I believe that their love is real. And so the question to me is not, is their love real or not real? That's not an interesting question to me. The question to me is, is their love good or is it not good? Yeah. That's a really interesting, that's really interesting, Heidi. You've given me so much to think about there, Heidi. I think that's a great reading. That's a great reading of the play. I think that really unlocks the play. Um, and makes me think of the final act as well, where even on on the beer in the in the vault on the tomb, Romeo sees Juliet as this blazing light. Right. Um, and what I misunderstood in your question, Tim, I think was that you were asking whether it's a character flaw that brings about the downfall, the tragedy. Right. That's what I didn't <laughs> didn't address. Um, and, and and in that case, I agree completely with. Heidi, I mean, I was thinking in terms of, is it a tragedy of character? Well, it is because they die. Yes. (laughs) I I see what you mean, that they are passively acted upon rather than um, it's something to do with their own great fault or flaw. I see what you mean. Um, And in that case, I agree with Heidi. They don't, they don't have any particular character flaws. And what's, what Heidi's made me think of is again, Othello, Mm -hmm. where you know, Othello says, I am one who loved not wisely, but too, too well. well. And we kind of question that with Othello because we think, really, right. did, Is that did true? you really love Desdemona? Is that what it looks like? But for these, for these characters, you, I think you could um, say that. They love not wisely, but too well. Mm. Right, which that that's makes in me... excess. It's an excess of virtue, perhaps. Exactly. That makes, that's exactly what I was just about to say, Sarah Jane. Thank you so much for saying that because then I started thinking about the friar, right? And that he is then supposed to be kind of this golden mean harmonizing character who's continually like, you know, these violent delights have violent ends. And uh, his his desire is that their love be moderate so that they can then bring healing to their families through their love. Now, the thing that completely undermines that point, though, is the fact that it is their unified love and death that brings about the resolution of this family. And so, there, I don't know if that undercuts my contemplation or supports it. And that I think is what makes this place so genius and so brilliant because there's so many ways of interpreting it. And so now I'm just thinking about the friar as being kind of this harbinger of the golden mean and whether or not that's good again. 
you know, whether or not he's making a case for the golden mean or against the golden mean, meaning the golden mean is being this idea that virtue is the mean between two extremes. Um, I read a brief interview with Tasman Grieg, who plays Lady Capulet, I think in the in the version that we're seeing. And she really kind of extols the prince as the one who can build this middle mm-hmm. ground and establish a conversation between these two warring households. So the quote is, in Romeo and Juliet, there's so much division in society, yet it's difficult to pinpoint who are the Montagues and who are the Capulets. That reflects where we've come to, be they Democrats or Republicans, Labor or Tory, politicians look pretty much the same. It speaks to our polarization. We need visionaries like the prince who can build a middle ground and establish conversation. Without that, people are going to lose their lives. It's the young people who will pay the price. She's not describing what you were describing, Heidi, which is kind of um, almost a metaphysical golden mean. Um, But I I do think that she sees in the prince, maybe what you saw in Friar Lawrence, this kind of um, the wisdom of moderation. That that quote really struck me. Um, Sarah Jane. Yeah, I mean, I don't see Friar Lawrence as a visionary in that kind of utopian sense that that critic's talking about, um, politicizing the play in that way. But I think he he has a, a kind of true and practical wisdom. And But he says a puzzling thing when he comes to Juliet to prepare her for her wedding to Paris and, of course, finds her dead, although, of course, he knows she isn't actually dead. Um, and he says to the family, she's not well married that lives married long, but she's mm. best married that dies married young. What does that and mean? there's no solace or comfort in that, surely. Right. I don't know. Yeah. I'm puzzling over that moment. Um, I, that well, this struck fits me how too. Puzzling. It ties into what Heidi was saying. Last week, we talked so much about what, a, what an enigma Friar Lawrence is. And this just kind of like follows suit. It's the opposite of what he's been counseling them. So as mm-hmm. Heidi was saying, you know, he's saying, don't burn out like a flash of light. Don't blow yourself up with your own gunpowder. But here he's saying the best thing you can possibly do is blaze and burn out quickly. Yeah. Is this just There's a, a comfort, Neil Young song in there somewhere. Comfort parents? But if so, it's so empty. Yeah. Right. Well, and that's what I thought too. Maybe it's, maybe he's doesn't, it's a true counsel, right? He's just filling space mm-hmm. because he's the one who knows that she's actually really still alive. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great um, point. But I think that, I think that the question is really valid. He remains an enigma, I think, throughout the play. And I keep trying to find his function, right? Um, What is it that he's supposed to offer here? Because he's just such a curious character. And it's not that his character doesn't work. I think it does. It's just so hard to name or pinpoint exactly what he does indeed provide to the play um, outside of the plot level. But it feels important, right? (laughs) Yeah. I've wondered if he functions in a way like the Greek chorus functions. I mean, sometimes the Greek chorus is providing kind of like a history of who came before Agamemnon and Oedipus. But sometimes the chorus seems to kind of respond in these kind of emotional ways, like how dare Agamemnon bring Cassandra back from the battlefield? He's married, you know? (laughs) And so I wonder if maybe Friar Lawrence is a little bit like that. He's kind of like the wisdom of the church. He's kind of the wisdom of moderation, but he also gets swept up in the moment, even like the Greek chorus gets swept up. I'm, I'm not sure about that thesis, but it, it occurred to me. And so I'm going to blurt it out on the air. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> you guys, closing thoughts for act four as we go into, dare we hope for a happy ending this time? Can we like possibly get a happy ending to this, you know, Tom. Maybe this Leo time. To Romeo Maybe Jay. this time. Will it be different? Will Maybe it be different this, this time? time? <laughs> uh, my closing thoughts have to do with the question of of fortune. Uh, Act five. I, I have I have things to say that need kind of the revolution, the resolution of the story to come. And I want to revisit and notice that idea of fortune. Romeo's claim, I am fortune's fool. And the the role of chance in this play becomes, these razor margins become really clear in Act 5 in a couple of key moments. And do we see these, do we see that as chance? Do we see it as providence? Do we see it as, 
you know, the clever machinations of a playwright only? Are they thematic? Do they support the questions and the themes of the play? Those kinds of that, that question of fortune becomes really important here because I think that it is this exact moment when, I mean, both of you pushed back on me a little bit on this, which led to a fruitful discussion. My claim that this was a tragedy that was almost a comedy really comes down to a plague in a town somewhere in this play, right? Mm. Off stage mm. completely. And and that becomes clear in act five and it impacts their lives and their deaths. Um, and and so that that question of fortune, fate, free will, whether or not this is a tragedy of character, whether or not this is, you know, come, some kind of nihilistic statement on Shakespeare's part, you know, all that mm. kind of thing. Um, so anyway, these are these are good yeah. questions to ask yourself in reading Act Five. Sarah mm. Jane, closing thoughts for Act yeah. Four. Yeah, Heidi's just also made me think that it's it's also Romeo's haste again, isn't it? If there were to be a character yeah. flaw, then probably haste would be it. Because when he gets the news in Act Five, the first thing he does is run headlong back. <laughs> and if he'd waited again, maybe things would have been different. But um, so at the end of Act Four, there are a few pointers towards the the role of fate that Heidi just mentioned. The friar says, the heavens do lower upon you for some ill, move them no more by crossing their high will. Uh, taking us back to this idea that they're, they are star-crossed lovers. The heavens have somehow set their love um, on this course. Um, and again, as, as you say, Tim, that's kind of a bit paradoxical coming from the friar. He, he isn't talking about God here. He's talking about some kind of fate. Um, and the other thing that happens at right. the end of Act Four, which should be a powerful note to the audience, is that music goes out. There is no more music in the play now. It's finished. It's silent. Huh. Huh. Um, perhaps one thing we can talk about in Act Five is there's this amazing tradition in Shakespeare's stage where the end of the play would be a jig. So after Juliet and Romeo's death at the end... And I've seen this played actually when Eaton put on the production a few years ago. At the end of the play, what would happen in the Globe is that everybody would get up, all the actors would get up again and dance and sing. And the play, even a tragedy, would end on this joyful note. So the music wow. stops here. I didn't know that. And then, yeah. So, so you leave the theatre, despite having experienced this terrible tragedy, with this uplifting yes. dancing and singing at the end. And it sort of brings wow. everyone back to life. And we need it. Golly, we need it at the end of this play. That's really good. I, I, it sounds, this is really interesting. We have kind of coalesced around these two potential um, interpretations for what this tragedy is. Is it a tragedy of character? We've talked about that some. Is it a tragedy of fate? And I think by act five, all three of us will probably have a point of view on that. So let's visit that next week. Um, I want to remind everyone that we love to hear from you. Um, we will love to hear from you questions for the Q&A, which we'll do after Act 5. Um, but you can join the conversation online or on Facebook through the Close Reads discussion group. We're also on Instagram and on Twitter at Close Reads Pods. You can reach us at closereadspodcasts at gmail.com for those of you who are trying to stay out of the social media space. I don't blame you. And don't forget, we've got an email newsletter which you can sign up for at closereads.substack.com. Throughout these episodes on Romeo and Juliet, we are leaving you with songs and special bonus points to listeners who can identify without cheating the artist and the name of the song. We would love to hear from you on Facebook. And here is the song that we're going to close Act 4 with. Um, until next week... Thanks so much for listening and happy reading. A cross between a movie star and a hero in a book. Romeo comes strutting in and everybody looks. Cause he's just got that special thing that everybody needs. And everybody wants him, but not as bad as me. Hey Romeo, where art thou? Get out here on the floor. I wanna dance you, darling, till you forget wherefore. Let's do step to a new step. But keep it all in line And we'll call this the Romeo Cause you're so mighty fine Oh,
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.